Hello. We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Christ is risen. Amen. It is good to be together this morning to worship the Lord, and it's good to be now looking at His Word together in this time. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you today, you can grab the one in the pew in front of you. But Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be focusing our attention this morning on verses 13 down to verse 15. The Apostle Paul is writing to the people at Colossae, and he is speaking to them on a variety of issues, some uh, heresies that he's having to address. Uh, And as he's coming to this portion, he's talking about what it means to be alive in Christ. He's talking about this identity that we have now as followers of Jesus Christ, and what does that look like for us? How can we experience the resurrected power of Christ's life in us? And so in verse 13, he says this, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So let's pray together. God, we ask right now that as we open Your Word together, that You would speak through Your Spirit to us, Lord, that we might reflect upon the power of Christ's resurrection, that we might reflect upon what it is that the gospel tells us about His death his burial, his resurrection, and the power that is then given to us that we might live lives that are truly changed, truly transformed by your Spirit. So God, help us now to understand these things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. About 14 years ago, I, uh, I stood next to a Humvee, and I had a long-handled mirror, search mirror, in my hand. And um, at that time, I was serving in the military. Uh, our mission at that particular time, on that particular day, was very simple. We had been told by our headquarters that there was going to be a, uh, a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, just basically a car bomb, that was supposed to come. And we were running a checkpoint in Baghdad because it was supposed to arrive at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. And so our team was tasked with searching all of the vehicles that happened to go by that day. And so I remember that day, it was so hot. I mean, hot here doesn't really spell hot there. It's different letters. I think they use different letters. There's more of them, I think. About 130 degrees in the daytime. So it's hot, about the middle of the day, and and there I am. I'm waiting as cars continue to come by. and, And then one car in particular catches my attention. This car is 
green, fairly large sedan, and, uh, and old. And uh, it, was, it was not well kept, which was often the case in Baghdad. The car was all dented up, and, uh, and as it, it, it approached, it stopped, and the man in the driver's seat, there was only one person in the vehicle, we asked him to exit the vehicle, and as we always did, what we, what we were trained to do is to have them go around opening the doors uh, for us. So we're not touching the vehicle, we're having them open the doors, and you kind of observe and watch as they do this, you're paying attention to every smallest detail of what the person is doing, how they're acting, everything. He is nervous, which is not outside the, the, the ordinary experience with most people. If you get stopped at a checkpoint, even here in the States, most of us, if we're not ready for it, we don't know what's going on, we're going to be a little bit nervous, and especially there. So he's nervous, hands are shaking, and of course, you're trying to discern, why is he so nervous? Is he nervous because things are about to go really, really bad, or is he just nervous in general, right? So he walks around, opens all of the doors, and, and I take him to the back, and now the thing that had drawn my attention was not so much that the car was, that the car was banged up. That was typical in Baghdad. The thing that really drew my attention to this particular vehicle, as opposed to all of the ones that had come before, is that the rear bumper was dragging, almost dragging the ground. Now, a sedan about that size could hold something like a thousand pounds worth of explosives, uh, maybe a couple of artillery rounds. And, uh, and that's what we had been told was coming through. And you don't know much about explosives or, or that size of an explosive. Uh, about a 38-meter circle would be what we would call the kill zone. So anything within that radius, anything in that, in that area is probably not going to exist anymore after that bomb goes off. So there's really not a whole lot of wandering away that you can do. So here I am. We're approaching the back where it seems like the most dangerous spot on the vehicle to me. And as we approach, it's almost like I could look in my peripheral. I could see all of the other soldiers just kind of backing away from me. You know, it's like... Oh, this is encouraging. Great, you know? So as we approach the, uh, the trunk with this, this middle-aged man who's very, very nervous, he takes out his key, and he, he takes his key, and he, he puts his key into the lock, and then he, he begins to turn it, and then I hear a click. Now, things are not always as they appear. I remember back as a young man in the churches that I've been involved with, my dad was a pastor for years and still is a pastor, there was... One older man in our church, everybody knew him by the name Tip, and uh, his last name was Clark, but Tip was just the most mild-mannered kind of guy you'd ever meet, just so nice, always had a smile, loved fishing, loved hanging out with me and my brother for some odd reason. He just was a great person to hang around, but he served in the 101st Airborne Division, and uh, he was one of, one of those that had dropped down behind enemy lines with the right before Normandy and, and done all of, the, all of those things that you see in Band of Brothers and that kind of thing. Just seemed like a, a fairly normal guy. Both of my grandfathers served in the military, both in the Korean War. And in fact, even here this morning, I know that we have many who have served in our armed forces, right? We've got people that have served in the jungles of Vietnam here this morning. We've got one who served in, uh, in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge. I mean, we've got all of these different stories around us and acts of heroism and, you know, a lot of times we want to think that people that serve in this capacity kind of, they ought to kind of be like the cast of the Expendables or something, you know? It's like Sylvester Stallone with a beret, you know? But the reality is most of us don't look that way. Most of, most of the guys that, that do these acts of heroism that we, we have in our lives, 
they, we don't look at them and see them that way. They're, they're humble. They seem average, but they're really not average at all. They are people who've put their lives on the line. Now, we think about all of the acts of heroism, whether it's in a movie that you watched or whether it's your grandfather or your brother or your sister or whatever it might be. All of these acts, they kind of pale in comparison to what we've experienced over the weekend, haven't they? We think about Christ. We think about even as we met together on Good Friday in our, our service of shadows, and, and what we saw is Christ giving his life as a ransom for the many, sacrificing himself, giving up everything, stepping out of the glory that was his, coming to earth, being born as a human being, living a life of absolute perfection, gathering disciples, ministering, healing, doing all the work that he's done, and then dying upon a cross for your sins and for my sins. And then today we come and we celebrate the reality that he has been raised. We think back about that story that we thought through on Friday night. Jesus was grabbed in the middle of the night. He was beaten mercilessly. He was mocked. He was forced to an illegal trial and sentenced to death. And then he was whipped and beaten, and they took him and made him carry his own crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem to a place called Place of the Skull or Golgotha. They stripped him. They drove spikes into his hands and his feet, and then they hoisted him up as an embarrassment on that cross. Above his head, I think probably what they thought being one of the cruelest things they could do, both to the Jews and to Jesus, they nailed a sign in place that said, the King of the Jews. This is your King. This is the one whom we can take out anytime we want to. Your King, King of the Jews. Now this is the guy, you remember about the stories of the gospel, this is the guy who walked all throughout Israel, preaching and teaching in the synagogues. He was preaching about a kingdom, a kingdom that was to come, a kingdom that was near, a kingdom that he said was at hand. And he had healed people of everything you could possibly imagine. Blindness, lameness, paralysis, didn't matter. Jesus healed them. He was casting out demons. He and his followers were going throughout the land doing the work that his father had told him to do. His father, or his, his followers, believed that he was the one that was promised, believed that he was the one that was to come, the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel who is going to usher in the kingdom of God upon earth. And yet, here we find him on Friday, he's hanging on a cross. There's no coming back from that. You don't get on and off the cross. He's hanging on the cross. He, he's gasping for each breath, and he's just dying like any other man would die. But things are not always as they appear. I want to draw your attention back to Colossians 2. Remember, Paul is writing to this church in Colossae about 2,000 years ago, and he's describing what Jesus' followers could not see. And so the beautiful thing about where we sit in salvation history 
is that we get to see the other side. The things that they saw, it was one-dimensional. They could only see what was right there in front of them. But now as we reflect upon what it is that Christ has done, we can now look backwards and we see now a fuller picture of what it is that God was doing through Christ at the cross. So look at that text once more with me. It's very short, but this is what he says. He says, you, talking to the church, the believers, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He's talking about Jesus. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Things are not always as they appear. Now, the first truth that I want you to see this morning is this. Jesus comes to us when we're helpless. Jesus comes to us when we're helpless. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses, in the wrongs that you've done, your trespasses, your sins. And then he says something strange, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. We don't really know what that means. Basically, what he's saying is that you were dead in your wrongs, you're dead wrong, more or less, and you're also in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You're outside the covenantal community. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of the covenant, and what he is saying is you're living your life in a way that is outside the boundaries of God and His covenant. You have no hope. You have no promises. You have nothing to look forward to in relationship to God. That's what he said. Now, in another place, Paul says it this way. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, you look at these texts, it seems as though it wasn't the carpenter that was bleeding out on a tree that was all that helpless. Seems like it was everyone else who was standing around watching. They were the ones that were helpless. See, it wasn't the the religious leaders who were the ones that were victorious in removing the troublemaker from among their midst. It it wasn't the Romans who who were just putting a criminal to death. Every single one of them was carrying out the desires of their bodies, of their minds. They were proud people. They were selfish people. They were alienated from the promises of God because of their sin. The truth is, even now, so many years later, all of us resonate with that, right? We're all the same. Not really any that different. We think about our lives in such a way that we want to live our lives in a way that makes us happiest. We always want to be comfortable. We always want to have the things around us that are going to entertain us, that are going to cause us joy. Most of the time that happens to include money and relationships. Anything like that. The reality is we do our best to be good neighbors, but we don't obey all the laws. 
How many of you always pay attention to the speed limit? I do, every single time. You're all sinners. No, I'm just kidding. No. Truth is, we, we pay attention to the laws that we think are most important most of the time. We're sinful people. At the heart of it, we, we fail to love God with every fiber of our being. And instead, what do we do? We, we love ourselves. That's why we take care of ourselves. That's why we always do for ourselves. We always look out for number one. Now, we may not actually vocalize that, but the reality is how we live our lives demonstrates it so often. And we think things like, what is going to give me the greatest measure of happiness? You don't say it, because then you sound really, really egotistical. We think things like, what, what is going to be the best path for me to move up the corporate ladder? What, what, what is it that's going to help me to, to make this kind of a friendship or to be popular in school or whatever it might be? Our lives are centered upon ourselves. But the reason that we were made in the very beginning was that we might worship and love God. And our sin has corrupted our purpose. And so we blindly walk through this life thinking that this is it. This is all. And Paul says, in Romans chapter 6, he says that the wages of sin, all of that living for self, the wages of sin is death. The wages. The wages, your paycheck for sin, your direct deposit for your sin is death. The consequence is death. But the beauty of what the gospel teaches us is that Jesus comes to us when we are most helpless. Paul says, while we were still weak, helpless, broken, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Because we cannot clean ourselves up enough for God. That's never what church is about. People used to dress up in their Sunday best every time they'd come to church, and it was almost like a, like a weird false metaphor about what was actually taking place. We'd come to church, we would present ourselves in a way that was different than the way that maybe we presented ourselves throughout the week, and so we cleaned up, we put on our tie, we put on our dress, we put on our bonnet, we went to church, and we did the thing we were supposed to do, and everybody looked and said, wow, man, they're a good Christian. I mean, look at that striped tie. Wow, they're a good Christian. Wow, even wore the best shoes, right? But we're dressing it up on the outside, and the reality is we cannot clean ourselves up enough for God. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability to clean yourself up enough for God. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Our sin against an infinite God bears the weight of an infinite penalty. But friends, this is the good news. Not only does Jesus come to us when we are on our weakest moment, when we are most helpless, but it says that Jesus will wipe away our record. He'll wipe our record clean. Look what he says there again in, in the passage. He says, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And how did he cancel them? He says, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross. Friends, we cannot fix ourselves. We're like a cup. 
that has mold and filth on the inside. We can wash the outside up all we want, but the inside still remains dirty. Only Jesus can clean the inside. So we, who were once unresponsive to God, who, as he said, remember, dead, dead in our trespasses and our sins, God awakens. God enlivens. He awakens our hearts to love him. Now, doesn't only mean that he awakens our hearts so that we can know about him, so that we can kind of think positive thoughts. Now, as a result of God in, interacting with us, encountering us, now we, we want to love him. We don't just want to love ourselves, we want to love him. We, we want to worship him. We want to be around him. We want to obey him with our lives. Now, if that was it, if he only just caused us to awaken up to the desires, we're still in a mess. Because the reality is we cannot do all of the things that he is requiring us to do. We have a big problem. No matter how much we want to love him, no matter how much we want to know him, our sin still blocks us from actually having a relationship with him. It's a barrier between us and God. But listen to what Paul says again. He says, he has forgiven us our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God will wipe away your bad record. He will give you a different record, a clean record. Cancel the record of your sin. How does he do it? How is it that a just God can look at you, a sinner deserving of God's punishment, how can he look at you and forgive your trespasses? I mean, we would think that any judge that did that in our day would be unjust, right? So how does he do it? How can he possibly forgive it? Well, the only way that he can do it is by sending his son, who is absolutely perfect, becoming a human being, taking your sin upon himself as a substitute and dying in your place under God's wrath and punishment. And this is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, to become a sinner, to become one who is known for sin, not just for the sins of the world, but for yours in particular, mine in particular, to be sin who knew no sin. He was not sinful. He was absolutely perfect, always good, always obedient. And this is what he says, so that for the purpose that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther called the wonderful exchange. Christ takes your sin and in exchange, he gives to you his righteousness. It's as if Jesus was wearing a robe that was absolutely pure and he comes to you and your clothing is filthy. It's covered in mold, covered in holes, covered in mud. And he pulls off his cloak. And he drops it. He removes your cloak and he puts it on his own shoulders and wears it. And he takes his cloak and he picks it up and he places it around your shoulders. And then he walks to the cross. What he has done is taken your guilt, taken your sin upon himself so that you could then bear his righteousness, something that you do not deserve. But not only does he come to us when we are most helpless, 
Not only does he wipe away our guilt, but lastly, Jesus has triumphed over the evil one, over the enemy. You look about, you think back and think about the cross. You see Jesus hanging there on the cross. He's, he's gasping for each breath. He's, he's slowly bleeding out. There doesn't seem to be anything positive coming as a result of this situation. And honestly, he looks like the biggest failure ever, right? I mean, he preached a good game, but in the end, he just dies. But things are not always as they appear. As he hangs there upon that cross, bearing the weight of sin upon his back. This is the beautiful part of the gospel. He wins. He wins. Paul says here, Colossians 2, <coughs> God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. This is the same kind of rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that he talks about in Ephesians 6. Who are these rulers and authorities? It is Satan. It is his kingdom. It is his demons. And Satan is the one who attempts to accuse us. Satan is the one that seeks to destroy us. And he says things like, you know what? You're a bitter person. You're an angry person. He accuses you of these things. You're the person who stabs your friends in the back when they're not around. You're a liar. You never tell the truth. You're sexually immoral. You're addicted to porn. You deceived your parents. You're a workaholic. But for those of us who trust in Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross, Satan's accusations are disarmed. They're disarmed. As he screams out, you are a sinner and you deserve hell. Jesus says, yes, but my blood covers that. I have taken care of that. Jesus' dying breath on the cross, with his last breath, he says, it is finished. It is complete. Friends, because Jesus died, we can live. And because Jesus lives now forever, we also can live forever with him. It looked as though he had lost. But in actuality, he won for us. Things are not always as they appear. I think back about our story at the very beginning of our time together. That middle-aged Baghdadian takes his key, inserts it into the lock, and as I see him begin to turn the key, it clicks, and he reaches in and he begins to raise the trunk up. And with a screech of metal, I've never ever in my life been so happy to see a big pile of dead fish. <laughs> but sometimes things are not always as they appear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the power of it. We pray this morning that as we reflect upon the resurrection of Christ, Lord, that you would help us as your people to be responsive to the gospel, that we would believe and trust in Christ's substitution for us as he took the cross that we so very much deserved. Lord, help us to rest upon him. Help us to trust in the resurrection knowing that even when suffering comes, even when heartache comes, even when loss comes, God, we have a promise that you have given to us 
that one day we will live forever with you. So be with us now as we respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name.